All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get started. If you want to get a seat, uh, make sure you grab handouts either now or before you leave. And uh, I am going to open us with a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray your blessing on our time, that you would help us to focus in and learn from this book, The Silver Chair, some of the wonder and beauty of your kingdom, Lord. We pray that you would help us to take wise counsel from Lewis's words here, and that you would use this time to draw us closer to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have some very uncharacteristic music going. Does anyone know what this is? Let me know so I don't play it again. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. All right, that was good. All right, I'll give you a clue. The name of the song is Anna Ng. 80s people, people, 80s people. Not here. No. Hey, we're 60s. Oh, do you want me to turn it out some more? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, that song is called Anna Ng, and it is by a group with the unlikely name of They Might Be Giants. You remember They Might Be Giants? And uh, so Anna Ng is a song that became an iconic song for... Uh, they might be giants. And you may think, well, what does that have to do with anything? But you will remember that in Harfang, there are what? Giants. And when they first are crossing the Ettensmoor, what do they see? They see boulders, and they say, gosh, those boulders look kind of like giants. Well, not surprisingly, as is often the case with C.S. Lewis, there's a layer behind a layer behind a layer here. So they might be giants, the rock band, stole their name from Don Quixote. Don Quixote, that scene was stolen from Dante's Inferno, one of Lewis's favorite works. And Dante's Inferno plays with that scene because it is a reference to Joshua and the spies when they come to the promised land and they are afraid to go into the land because there might be giants. So you never know, even they might be giants and Anna Ng have something to do with C.S. Lewis. So... Uh, we are going to dive right in here, and uh, as we talked about before, one of the genius parts of this particular work is that it operates extremely successfully on three different levels. It's a riveting children's story. It is also a great fictional reworking of Plato's <coughs> Allegory of the Cave, and it is also a parable about truth and the idea of why truth is important. So as we do each week, uh, I want us to remember our focus about the inklings and the idea of living deliberately, the idea that the inklings are great models for us of what it means to actually 
set your mind somewhere. We live in a culture where very few of us set our minds, we just let our minds go. And the Inklings are a great example of what can happen when you do set your mind on what God tells you to set it on. So let's say this verse together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So as we said before, the Inklings are this group that gathered around C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, defined by their interest in writing and by their deep commitment to Christianity. And part of what they wanted to do was to recover the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty, and to impact this culture, to be uh, not just something that stopped the culture at some level from going bad as quickly as it could, but they wanted to actually mount an offensive to try to bring truth back into the culture. And that's part of the reason that they began to write fiction. Um, Lewis, several times in letters, talked about how any amount of theology could be smuggled into people's minds um, through the medium of story. So that's part of what is going on here. And we talked about the Narnia stories originated from really when Lewis was a boy, when he was nine years old and wrote his history of Mouseland uh, that covers several hundred years of history of the mouse kingdoms and lists out their rulers and all of that. And then he had this vision of uh, a fawn in the wood with an umbrella with snow and packages when he was a teenager. And that vision kept coming back to him. And then when children were boarded with him right when World War II was getting ready to break out, he started telling them a story because he was so distressed by these children from London that they had no imagination. They were just incapable of wonder. And so he was determined to fire them up about that. So he started uh, what later became the Narnia story with them, but picked it up later on. And he also was quite passionate about his views about children's stories. I've been picking on Captain Underpants as the <laughs> exemplar of what's wrong with children's literature these days, dumbed down, uh, just not full of truth, goodness, and beauty. So Lewis said, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest. So uh, quite opinionated about that. And we talked about how in the silver chair, there are three characters that had appeared elsewhere in the Narnia stories. Aslan, of course, the great lion, the one who is <laughs> Lewis's idea of suppose there were a land like Narnia, and God needed to redeem it, how would he do that? And so Aslan is the Christ figure um, in Narnia. Caspian, the rightful heir to the throne, uh, that the four children that are in the line, the witch and the wardrobe, become good friends with. And then Eustace, uh, Eustace, that poor guy with that awful name, uh, the first line of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, really an unfortunate name. And really, please do read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Just read how just awful Eustace is. He's just awful. I mean, you want to smack him. Lewis does such a great job portraying how obnoxious he is. 
And then he gets turned into a dragon because he's so obnoxious. And then he is healed by Aslan causing him to have to shed his skin. And Aslan's claws have to rip that skin of the dragon, which is unbelievably painful, and rip all of that away before Aslan can dress Eustace again. And when he does that, it changes everything. Yes? And another wonderful thing from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is how wonderful and goddess-like Prince Rillian's mother is, who, who Prince Caspian meets in marriage. And to think that this beautiful woman was taken out by the green Yes, witch. the lady of the green kirtle. he is in her service after having a mother like that. Right. Shocking. <laughs> yes. So... One of the things about Eustace is that he is transformed by his encounter with Aslan, but as is the case with all of us, we may have met Jesus, but we didn't instantly become perfect when that happened. And so Eustace is shown as developing over the course of the story. He still has his moments of being really obnoxious. And as we move into the story, there are all of these themes that are just all over the place in this story, and it really is quite remarkable. One of the things we've talked about is that particularly if you pull the pictures out of the book, these chapters are very, very short, and the amount of depth that Lewis can put into these chapters, where you have a deep understanding of the characters, you have an understanding of the issues that they're facing, and you also become emotionally invested in what's happening, it really is a tour de force of writing. So the first themes that we talked about were experiment house and education, that whole idea of progressive education that began at the beginning of the 20th century and is flourishing today all over America. Uh, progressive education that throws out all of the classics, throws out all of the canon of literature written by dead white men and substitutes for it innovative, new things. Um, the goal of which is to get you into the best college that you can possibly get into. And there's a great news story about that, but I'm going to talk about that in my sermon on Sunday, so we're not going to go there tonight. Um, the second theme that is so important is outcasts as protagonists. This is pretty radical for a children's story written during the middle of the 20th century. Because remember, the story opens with a middle school girl who has been bullied, who is crying behind the gymnasium. And she becomes the hero of the story, along with this obnoxious boy, Eustace Clarence Scrub. This is not to be expected in children's literature. But... Lewis makes a lot of great points in this, and part of it, you see that the things that are perhaps less appealing about Eustace and Jill are somewhat, not completely, but somewhat due to the awful ways that they have been treated. So that is really important. The third thing is Eustace being changed by Aslan. Eustace, very early in the story, in the first chapter, asks Jill when she's picking on him, can't you tell that I've changed? And Jill, to her credit, thinks for a little bit and says, well, yes, you have changed. And even they, 
the dreaded capital T, they, the gang of bullies at the school, even they have noticed, according to Joel, and they're planning to beat it out of Eustace at the earliest possible moment. But Eustace wants to be known as having changed. He wants it to be known that being with Aslan has changed him. And then the fourth thing, uh, so important, vulnerability leading to real fellowship. Uh, Eustace takes this big risk when he and Jill are being chased by the bullies, and he decides that he is going to open his heart to her, his deepest, most personal secret, that she could make fun of him and sell him down the river to the popular kids, but he takes the risk to do it, which is a huge risk. This is one of the biggest risks a junior high student can ever take, is to open up to someone else. And fortunately, Jill receives what he says, and it creates this bond between them. And even though they, they fuss at each other, you can tell that there is this bond that they have that dates from that moment. And then the last one, um, Aslan calling or calling Aslan. Uh, the children are desperate to try to get to Narnia, to get away from the bullies, and they're shouting Aslan's name and saying, please, please let us in, let us in, let us in. And they go to the door that's always locked in the wall and that's miraculously unlocked, and they open the door, and on the other side of it is not England, but Aslan's country. So they are sure that through their power and their uh, passion to get to Narnia, that they have sort of battered their way into Aslan's presence. But yet, when Jill talks with Aslan, he keeps saying, well, I called you here for a purpose. And she finally summons up her cards and says, oh, no, no, there's some mistake. Um, you didn't call us. We came of our own initiative. And then Aslan says, you could not have come had I not been calling you. And there's a whole theological sermon there, and I'm going to restrain myself. So, Brian would take us outside right now. He would say, look at these burrows that look like they could prick you. Watch them this week, because they are going to transform. They're going to be born again like Eustace was by Aslan, from one creature into another, because they're going to become wisteria blossoms this week. That's right. Yep. That's right. That may be happening again. (laughs) All right. So chapter two, uh, these themes are going to show up all the way through the book. The first one, there is no other stream. Jill literally dying of thirst, coming around in this beautiful silent wood, hearing a babbling brook, going to get this drink of water that she's just dying to have. And she rounds the bend, and there's this huge lion right next to the stream. And she's terrified. And so the lion speaks to her, which, of course, scares her completely out of her wits. And then she asks the lion to go away so she can drink. And he's like, no. And then she said, well, will you promise to not bother me uh, while I drink? And he says, no, I make no promise. And she's so terrified, and she says, well... I'll just have to go find another stream to drink from. And he says, there is no other stream. And of course, it's a great metaphor that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this whole idea that you cannot come via another stream. 
So that is a beautiful image. And then the next one, sin and its consequences. Jill is showing off at the beginning because she's not afraid of heights. And she's showing off, and because she doesn't really know what she's doing, um, she realizes at the last minute when she looks down that this cliff she's on the edge of is about 100 times higher than anything, and she gets a little vertigo. And then Eustace, to his great and everlasting credit, decides to try to save her. But in trying to save her, she does not want to be saved because of her pride. She wants to be able to do it on her own, and she sort of accidentally throws him off the cliff. (laughs) Now, fortunately, they're in Aslan's country, and Aslan catches him on his breath and blows him to Narnia. But it is a terrible, terrible thing that she did, and it prevents them from being able to carry out this quest in exactly the right way. And that quest Aslan gives them is an incredible quest. It's not like, go and pick daisies down by the stream. (laughs) You know, they are told to go and rescue the imprisoned prince who's being held captive by this evil woman who might want to try to kill them. And these are junior high kids, remember? And the amazing thing about it is it's a noble and inspiring task (laughs) and calling. It is not a mundane go and whittle away your life, or as I was quoting Proofrock last week, measure out your life in coffee spoons. Um, It is a life of adventure and risk, trusting in Aslan. And then Aslan gives them the signs, uh, the four signs that they are to repeat and memorize, to talk about in the morning when they get up by the roadside as they walk, in the evening as they get ready to go to bed, almost pulled verbatim out of Deuteronomy 6 about what we're told to do with scripture. And those signs are guaranteed, if you will, by Aslan to enable them to carry out this quest. But he tells them, you've got to remember the signs. And Deuteronomy 6 is all about remembering. It's all about when you come into the land that the Lord your God will give you, that is full of vineyards you did not plant and houses you did not build, do not forget the Lord your God. And Aslan even tells Jill, up here in my country, the air is clear. It's easy to remember You think about me and my country easily, but when you go down from my country, the air will become thick and foggy, and it will not be as easy to see or to remember. So it is all the more important that you remember these signs. Well, of course, as you've been reading, they don't do such a great job of that. So this is just an expansion of that. And I love just this little dialogue. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So beautifully rendered. And then this last part about the signs is so important. This quotation from Aslan, remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. 
It's a very profound statement, particularly if you see the signs as being a symbol for scripture and think about what the role of scripture is for most people who are Christians. It is uh, certainly not like that. It's not that central. And so this whole idea about remembering and believing the signs is going to pervade the rest of the story. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that the signs, even though they don't get them right, Aslan is still able to work. So there's a whole theme of redemption in here that's going to show up later on. But there's a quotation that we talked about earlier this year from The Weight of Glory. Uh, it's very apt for this story. And in that sermon, Lewis said, You and I have need of the strongest spell, the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. And that idea that we are enchanted, we don't think we are. We're, well, I don't want to spoil anything for the future yet. We don't think we're enchanted, so we don't think we need anything to break the spell. But what Lewis is saying is that we have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from this evil enchantment. So more on that later. So chapters 3, 4, and 5, some themes here, identity and courage. Uh, when they land in Narnia and they're in this lovely castle with feather beds and beautiful clothes and feasts and fires and all of them, they're so excited. And then in the middle of the night, they're awakened they're dragged out of bed by this frightening three-foot-tall owl that talks to them. And then they are forced to hold on to the owl's feathers as they fly through the night in the cold. And then they're dumped off in the top of a belfry that's abandoned and is full of quivering warm owls. Not a particularly nice way to spend an evening. But to Eustace's great credit and as proof that this transformation is really taking, as soon as they get into this parliament of owls, Eustace speaks up, and even though you know owls are dangerous, owls are birds of prey, even though he's surrounded by these owls and he doesn't know much about them, he says right off the bat, if this parliament of owls is any kind of plot against the king, let it be known that I am the king's man and I will have nothing to do with any kind of plot against the king. Now that is a very, very <clears throat> bold statement. And it shows that he's completely defined himself in terms of his relationship with Caspian, which is all part of his relationship with Aslan, that those are his people, if you will. And he will brook no sort of plot or uh, deception relating to that. And then the second thing, sins small and large have consequences. One of the other sins that happens is <clears throat> Eustace is annoyed at Jill, which is somewhat understandable since he fell off this cliff <laughs> because of her. He's annoyed with her, and so when she shows up and says, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, he's like, Shut up! <laughs> and he just pays attention to Caspian getting on the ship and all the pageantry. Of course, he doesn't know it's Caspian, nor does he know that the first sign 
is to speak to your old friend as soon as you see him, because Jill hasn't told him the sign yet, because Eustace told her to shut up. (laughs) And so that sin of saying shut up in that moment is what causes them to miss the sign. So Jill's sign, I mean, Jill's sin, which arguably is the big sin of like heaving him over the cliff, (laughs) versus Eustace's sin of saying shut up, the consequences are pretty similar. And there's a whole sermon in that that I won't give you. Um, Third, comfort is often the enemy of the quest. This is a major, major theme in this book that we're going to continue to unpack. And I want to just clarify one thing about it, because Lewis is very clear about that um, in this story, but also in a lot of his other writing. Lewis is not saying that we are supposed to be ascetics. We are not supposed to be ascetics. We are not supposed to think that comfort and beauty and pleasure are bad things. Those things are all created by God. But what Lewis is saying here is very similar to what Scripture teaches about money. Money is not a bad thing. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So here you could say the love of comfort is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not that the comfort's bad, that a bed or a fire are bad things. But if they distract you and get you off of the quest, um, they may, in fact, be uh, not just bad, but deadly. So we see that comfort is the enemy of the quest. And then the last theme in these chapters, uh, to carry out Aslan's call, we often need people who are very, very different from us. Remember, these are two upper-middle-class English children going to a public, well, a British public school, in our view, a private school that their parents have to pay a lot of money for them to go to. Um, In 1940s England, diversity was not a word they'd ever heard of. Um, So they are surrounded by other students who are just like them. And they go on this quest, and they are pretty much forced by the owls into partnering with this marsh wiggle a marsh wiggle, a creature they've never seen before, who smells funny, who has green skin, who has hair that looks like Spanish moss, and who talks funny and eats weird things like eels. So this is way out of their comfort zone. But they're told there is no one better who can help you with this quest than Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle. And Puddleglum, when we meet him in the story, he's going about his business, and the owl says, you need to stop, this is on the lion's business. And that one phrase, the lion's business or Aslan's business, is enough for Puddleglum to put aside his entire life and occupation to help those people that are on the lion's business. There's all another sermon in that that I won't do. Uh, But... Part of what Lewis is saying here is the same thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, that there's no part of the body that is unimportant. And when we leave off parts of the body, we cripple ourselves in carrying out what God has called us to do. Without Puddleglum, there is no way that this quest could ever have been accomplished. And without the children in Puddleglum working together, there's no way this could have been accomplished. And this is one of Lewis's favorite themes 
Um, I'm not going to go unpack the whole Wine, Witch, and the Wardrobe tonight, but if you go back and read that, notice the gifts that they are given by Father Christmas when he appears. And you will see that each one of those gifts, used at the right time, enables Aslan to have the victory. But if any one of those gifts had not been used at the right time, or had been discarded, or they'd gotten mad at each other and all said, I want a sword too, um, <coughs> it's just very interesting. So Lewis is making that same point in that story as well. Uh, so this whole idea of these different themes is really interesting, because if you think about this, this is a children's story. These are big themes. This is like not even philosophy 101. This is like, you know, philosophy 394 or something like that. Um, there are lots of big, big themes in here. And it's interesting because Lewis is expecting that at least at some level, children are going to understand some of this. There's a lot of character training in these stories, uh, which if you look in Captain Underpants, uh, you will find is largely, <laughs> largely lacking. Uh, so it, it's interesting that he's dealing with a lot of big ideas, and he doesn't just stop. It's not like he introduces the ones that are in Chapter 1 and then just carries those through. He keeps adding more and more, and when we haven't even gotten to the most important ones yet. So it's, uh, it really is quite a remarkable achievement. So the chapters 6 and 7 that we talked about last time, the reality of evil and its seductive beauty. Uh, that is such an important concept, and it is one that is so very important in our culture today. Safety and wise counsel, another hugely important thing in a culture where we are so individualistic and don't want anyone to tell us what to do. The danger of being wise in your own eyes, which is sort of the other side of that coin. And then comfort is the enemy of the quest. Oh, there that is again. So I want to just go through a little bit of this again. Uh, evil and its seductive beauty. Scripture tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And part of the problem for so many of us is that we have the idea that if Satan is going to tempt us to do something, then when we go out on the sidewalk tonight, a black limo is going to pull up, and the door will open, and a little guy in red tights with a pitchfork <laughs> is going to get out and say, come with me to do evil. And we're like, well, I wouldn't do that. And so we think we've got the whole temptation thing under control. But the fact of the matter is Satan is much, much, much more subtle than that. And he uses beauty, even though beauty is one of the things we talked about early on as being one of the things that God uses to point us to him, but he uses counterfeit beauty. And here, uh, this lady is the most beautiful lady that the Lord Drinian has ever seen when he goes out with Prince Rullian. And she was tall and great and shining and wrapped in a thin garment as green as poison. Well, there's a little clue for you. Yeah. Uh, and the prince stared at her like a man out of his wits. But suddenly the lady was gone, Drinian knew not where, and they returned to Caer Paravel. 
It struck in Jenny, stuck in Drinian's mind that this shining green woman was evil. And then when the children encounter her, you'll remember uh, when we talked about this last time, when they encounter her on the moor, it's very odd because they're out in the middle of this wasteland where there are all these giants, and then suddenly this beautiful lady in essentially a ball dress appears. Well, that's a little odd. She's certainly out of context. And when they meet her, she has this lovely trilling laugh, and she's very charming, and Puddleglum is not taken in at all. But the children are utterly seduced by her. And then the woman says to the children, because they're so hungry and cold and all of that, she says, you shall find good lodging and merry hosts in Harfang. You would be wise to winter there, or at the least to tarry certain days for your ease and refreshment. There you shall have steaming baths, soft beds, and bright hearths, and the roast and the bake to the sweet and the strong will be on the table four times in a day. Sounds so good. So comfortable. And yet, she is trying to send them to their death. She's taking these two little innocent children that she's never met and sending them to their death. That is not what nice people do. This is an evil woman. But one of the things we talked about last week, and I won't go into all of this, we live in a culture because we have discarded the idea of absolute truth. We've discarded the idea of a standard. And so... We don't want to call anything evil. That's just a choice. Everything is a choice. And there's nothing that's evil. And I talked about how when I was working with students over the past 10 years, there had been this evolution where in fairly recent years, when presented with the idea of Nazi Germany, which used to be 100% all the time, people saying that's evil, there was a significant minority of students saying, well, that's what the Germans decided they needed to do. Their legislature enacted that. Who are we to tell them that that was wrong? And who were we to go to war and intervene and interfere with that? That was their own business, and we should keep out of things like that. That is very frightening. If that doesn't scare you, come talk to me later. All right. Um, then the whole idea of safety and wise counsel. Puddleglum is such a brilliant character, and he is wise in the fullness of what that word means. And you can see here, he didn't want to go to Harfang at all, um, but he goes with them, um, but he insists that they promise that they will not say that they're looking for Prince Rillian. And thank heavens he exacted that promise, because they would have been killed right off the bat if they had mentioned that. So Puddleglum is a hero right there. Um, just as an aside, does anybody know what the word harfang means? Well, let me just give you a little tip here. Whenever you read C.S. Lewis and there's an odd name, look it up. <laughs> because I have yet to find anything like that that didn't mean something. So harfang actually is a word from the French, 
and it refers to a beautiful snowy owl that is one of the most dangerous predatory birds of all that is renowned for eating all of its prey whole. Think about that. Yes, for example. So Puddleglum, very wise counsel here. The danger being wise in your own eyes, this little dialogue. Are you still sure of those signs, Pole? What's the one we ought to be after now? Oh, come on. Bother the signs, said Pole. Something about someone mentioning Aslan's name, I think. But I'm jolly well not going to give a recitation here. Oh, that was next, was it, said Puddleglum. Now I wonder, are you right? Got him mixed, I shouldn't wonder. It seems to me this hill, this flat place we're on, is worth stopping to have a look at. Have you noticed? And then they cut him off and say, we're going to Harfang. Well, they think they have got this under control. They think Puddleglum is stupid. They don't want to listen to what he has to say. They are determined. And so they march right into the trap. And then comfort is the enemy of the quest. And again, this great little dialogue. Well, it isn't exactly night, not yet, began Puddleglum. But the two children both said, come on, and began stumbling forward on the slippery tableland as quickly as their legs would carry them. The marsh wiggle followed them, still talking. But now that they were forcing their way into the wind again, they could not have heard him, even if they wanted to, and they didn't want. They were thinking of baths and beds and hot drinks, and the idea of coming to Harfang too late and being shut out was almost unbearable. They're so addicted to this idea of comfort that they lose perspective on everything else. But even if you're freezing cold, you want to be careful where you decide to spend the night. So now for chapters 8 and 9, uh, again, four really important themes that we see. In the first one, the danger of naivete in the face of evil. And we'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. The slippery slope of neglecting the signs, compromise. The third one, the importance of conviction and true repentance. And then, once again, comfort as the enemy of the quest. So first, this whole idea of the danger of naivete in the face of evil. One of the things that is important about children is that children should be innocent and naive at some level. But at the same time, there's a difference between innocence and naivete and gullibility. And what you see here is that the children are not, they don't have a framework to understand about evil. They don't have a framework to believe that they need to be careful. They are so blinded by what they want that they've sort of left aside any sort of warning bells that might be going off. And Lewis doesn't really give as much insight into what's going on in their minds about this other than that they are literally hell-bent on getting into Harfang. So it's very interesting looking at the way he presents this. So this little excerpt. Thinking to himself that he would never forgive her or Puddleglum either, because neither of them would speak up, 
Scrub licked his lips and shouted up to the king giant, If you please, sire, the lady of the green kirtle salutes you by us and said you'd like to have us for your autumn feast. (laughs) The giant king and queen looked at each other, nodded to each other, and smiled in a way that Jill didn't exactly like. She liked the king better than the queen. He had a fine curled beard and a straight eagle-like nose and was really rather good-looking as giants go. The queen was dreadfully fat and had a double chin and a fat powdered face, which isn't a very nice thing at the best of times and, of course, looks much worse when it's ten times too big. Then the king put out his tongue and licked his lips. Anyone might do that, but his tongue was so very large and red and came out so unexpectedly that it gave Jill quite a shock. So the words that the children speak are so interesting here. So the children have taken the Lady of the Green Kirtle's word for how kind and gentle the giants of Harfang are and how warm the welcome would be if they came to Harfang. And in their naivete, they have not even considered this greeting that the lady told them to give the giants. And it has this horrifying double entendre there. And back in that section of the story, it says, Only tell them, answered the lady, that she of the green kirtle salutes them by you and has sent them two fair southern children for the autumn feast. And because they so desperately want what she seems to be offering, warmth and comfort and respite, they let their guard down and trust her, even though they have ample reason to be suspicious. Now again, there's a great parallel to this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Edmund comes into Narnia and he meets the White Witch, and the White Witch, you might remember, the first thing that happens is her little dwarf driver tries to knife him. That might be a clue that this is someone you (laughs) want to be a little bit careful about. But nonetheless, um, he talks to her, and she yells at him a little bit. She's very bipolar. Um, She yells at him a little bit, and is like, oh, come sit with me. And she wraps him up in her little cloak and says, oh, wouldn't you like something to drink? And he says he would like some hot chocolate. And then she drops this magic potion on the snow and hot chocolate appears. Now, you have to really want hot chocolate (laughs) to take something that was made in that particular fashion from this lady that just tried to kill you. Yeah, Yeah, that's probably (laughs) not great judgment. And then the whole Turkish delight thing, and Turkish delight is his favorite thing. And what you notice in that story is that there's a whole subtext about addiction and false promises. And it's the same thing going on here. There are false promises from this lady of the green kirtle about what they're going to get if they go to Harfang. But because they want what's promised, even though they've forgotten that Aslan told them, stay with the signs, remember the signs, nothing else matters. They've gotten off course, and when they go off course, the things that they want become the most important, not the signs. And the problem is they think they know what they're doing, and in fact, as we just read, Eustace offers himself 
as the main course for the autumn feast without even realizing it. So they should have had good reason to be suspicious, but they're letting their physical wants overcome their judgment because of their naivete. And there's this little verse from Matthew, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And you see later in these chapters that they start actualizing what that verse says by trying to trick the giants and beat them at their own game. Brian, can I ask, it seems like in this story, or I'm just noticing more in this one than in the other books, there seems to be a lot of sort of fairy tale devices. And that like the beautiful woman, like, you know, Snow White or something, mm-hmm, like that, and mm-hmm. the woman and the poison apple. Yep, yep. And then, so that the king... Uh, you'll like the look of the king because he was sort of good looking, but the, the queen was ugly and whatever. Sort of the, some of those same sort of devices of what we see, what we want to see, or like. Yep. Kind of thing. I yep. just see it more in this one than I Yes. Well, one. I think there's, there's an extra dose of it here. Yeah. There's some of it all the way through the Narnia stories. Um, and part of that is because Lewis is such a believer in not discarding the past. He wants to pull every image. It's like we were talking about this woman is right out of John Keats' poem, Lamia. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. So, and then this is, I think, one of the most chilling scenes in the whole book. And again, it's so chilling, it makes you have shivers in your spine. But it's such, again, economy of words. So they're in the giant kitchen, and Jill says, I can't bear this, thought Jill. To distract her mind, she began looking about her. Just in front of her was a clean, wide table with two clean pie dishes on it and an open book. They were giant pie dishes, of course. Jill thought that she could lie down just comfortably (laughs) in one of them. Then she climbed... You know that word, irony? Um, Then she climbed up on the bench beside the table to look at the book. She read, Mallard, this delicious bird can be cooked in a variety of ways. It's a cookery book, thought Jill without much interest and glanced over her shoulder. The giantess's eyes were shut, but she didn't look as if she were properly asleep. Jill glanced back at the book. It was arranged alphabetically, and the very next entry, her heart seemed to stop beating. It ran, man, this elegant little biped has long been valued as a delicacy. It forms a traditional part of the autumn feast and is served between the fish and the joint. Each man but she could not bear to read any more. She turned round. The giantess had waked up and was having a fit of coughing. Jill nudged the other two and pointed to the book. They also mounted the bench and bent over the huge pages. Scrub was still reading about how to cook men when Puddleglum pointed to the next entry below it. It was like this marsh wiggle. Some authorities reject this animal altogether as unfit for giant's consumption because of its stringy consistency and muddy flavor. The flavor can, however, be greatly reduced if... But they realize now that they are the main course for the autumn feast and that they were sent there for that reason. And Jill, of course, is fantasizing about lying down in this pie dish. And the pie dish, the reason the book on the stand is open to that page is they're getting ready to be slaughtered and cooked. So uh, that has dealt with their naivete. They have had 
a wake-up call of the worst kind. So uh, at this point, they become a little bit desperate. But they're also, um, in this chapter, is a really wonderful example of the slippery slope of neglecting the signs and what happens when you neglect the signs and begin to compromise and think, oh, it won't be so bad. So we have this little excerpt. Suddenly, Puddleglum turned to them, and his face had gone so pale that you could see the paleness under the natural muddiness of his complexion. He said, don't eat another bite. What's wrong? asked the other two in a whisper. Didn't you hear what those giants were saying? That's a nice tender haunch of venison, said one of them. Then that stag was a liar, said another. Why, said the first one. Oh, said the other. They say that when he was caught, he said, don't kill me. I'm tough. You won't like me. For a moment, Jill did not realize the full meaning of this. But she did when Scrub's eyes opened wide with horror. And he said, so we've been eating a talking stag? This discovery didn't have exactly the same effect on all of them. Jill, who was new to that world, was sorry for the poor stag and thought it rotten of the giants to have killed him. Scrub, who had been in that world before and had at least one talking beast as his dear friend, felt horrified, as you might feel, about a murder. But Puddleglum, who was Narnian-born, was sick and faint and felt <laughs> as you would feel if you found you had eaten a baby. And the interesting thing about this is under any normal sort of circumstances, presented with the idea of eating a talking stag, the children would have run away in horror because they would have thought that that was just awful in every sense of the word. But yet what has happened even though they couldn't imagine that they would ever get in a situation where they would eat a talking stag because of this compromise of having entered in to this place where they never should be in the first place. Remember, Puddleglum said, Aslan didn't say anything about the gentle giants, and yet they persist in going there. They go into this place of compromise, and they end up in this environment where doing the unimaginable not only becomes possible, but seems normal. And it is a great little proof text of the whole idea about why it's so important to flee temptation and that you can't compromise with evil. So he does a brilliant job with that. And then another brilliant job with this, uh, the importance of conviction and true repentance. And I'm using conviction here in the New Testament sense. The idea of being cut to the heart about sin. It's what we see in the book of Acts uh, when Peter preaches and it says that the people were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. So here's the little vignette. I do, said Scrub, but Puddleglum says he has a headache. Hello, your window has a window seat. If we got up on that, we could see out. And at once they all did so. And at the first glance, Jill said, Oh, how perfectly dreadful. The sun was shining, and except for a few drifts, the snow had been almost completely washed away by the rain. Down below them, spread out like a map, lay the flat hilltop which they had struggled over yesterday afternoon. Seen from the castle, it could not be mistaken for anything but the ruins of a gigantic city. Remember, their quest 
The whole reason they've left with Puddleglum is to find the ruins of the giant city, which is one of the signs. It had been flat, as Jill now saw, because it was still on the whole paved, but though in places the pavement was broken. The crisscross banks were what was left of the walls of huge buildings, which might once have been giants' palaces and temples. One bit of wall, about 500 feet high, was still standing. It was that which she had thought was a cliff. The things that had looked like factory chimneys were enormous pillars, broken off at unequal heights. Their fragments lay at their bases like felled trees of monstrous stone. The ledges which they had climbed down on the north side of the hill, and also, no doubt, the other ledges which they had climbed up on the south side, were the remaining steps of giant stairs. To crown all, in large dark lettering across the center of the pavement, ran the words, Under Me. The three travelers looked at each other in dismay, and after a short whistle, Scrub said what they all were thinking. The second and third signs muffed, and at that moment Jill's dream rushed back into her mind. It's my fault, she said in despairing tones. I'd given up repeating the signs every night. If I'd been thinking about them, I could have seen it was the city, even in all that snow. I'm worse, said Puddleglum. I did see you nearly. I thought it looked uncommonly like a ruined city. You're the only one who isn't to blame, said Scrub. You did try to make a stop. Didn't try hard enough, though, said the Marsh Wiggle, and I'd no call to be trying. I ought to have done it, as if I couldn't have stopped you two with one hand each. The truth is, said Scrub, we were so jolly keen on getting to this place that we weren't bothering about anything else. At least I know I was. Ever since we met that woman with the knight who didn't talk, we've been thinking of nothing else. We'd nearly forgotten about Prince William. I shouldn't wonder, said Puddleglum, if that wasn't exactly what she intended. Mm -hmm. And then a little later, Eustace kicked the window seat savagely and went on. So it's no good, Pole. I know what you were thinking because I was thinking the same. You were thinking how nice it would have been if Aslan hadn't put the instructions on the stones of the ruined city till after we'd passed it. And then it would have been his fault, not ours. <laughs> So likely, isn't it? No. We must just own up. We've only four signs to go by, and we've muffed the first three. But it's a very telling passage, because instead of the, he made me do it, it's her fault, all of them are cut to the quick. All of them admit that it was their fault. There's no hint of trying to blame anyone else and you can also see that this is not one of those uh, I'm sorry that I was caught kind of situation, but uh, actually I'm sorry because I did something that was wrong. It's like that old idea of the child <coughs> caught putting his hand in the cookie jar, and he's sorry because he got caught putting his hand in the cookie jar, but the instant that the mother looks away, he's going to do it again because he has not had any change of heart. He's just looking for the next opportunity. And what you see here is real repentance. This is what scripture calls metanoia, and it's a change of heart, a change of mind, the kind of repentance 
that is part of the reason that that's the same word for about face, the military command, that you realize the direction you're going is wrong and that if you continue to go there, disaster will result. And so you turn around to go the other direction. So we see that they have this experience of genuine repentance. And it's no wonder, because remember, once you know this, it's very interesting to go back and reread that part while they were in the ruined city of the giants. And it should have been so obvious to them. But again, this shows the power of our desires and our passions that when we get focused on something that we want, all of the evidence of what might be going on can go right out the window. Yes? It's interesting you use the word repentance in this case because it, it isn't that they have that they made the wrong choices through malice of forethought. It's that they made the wrong choices through negligence yes. of obligation or duty. Yes. And so <clears throat> repentance is almost like we usually denote that with being, well, I shouldn't have had the extra cookie or I shouldn't have taken the extra money or I shouldn't have done this or said those bad words where you kind of knew that what you were doing at the time was wrong. This is where you're willy-nilly going down a path that just through the haze in your mind, the beauty of the, of the lure, you're, you've lost sight of, you know, do unto others as you would have done mm-hmm. unto yourself. Mm-hmm. And you get way down that path before you reach the understanding that it's a wrong path. Right. Yeah, I think that's true, and they are, they're sort of seduced by all of that. But there is, at the same time, the fact they've been given this command to remember the signs. Nothing is more important than the signs, and they clearly have directly disobeyed that one. Yeah, but they, they clearly are, you know, it's not as if they are out purposing to do evil. It's more what you might call a sin of omission than a sin of commission. And then fourth... Comfort is the enemy of the quest. Sorry if you're getting tired of this one, um, and we'll wrap up with this. The question is, came Puddleglum's voice out of the darkness ahead, whether taking one thing with another, it wouldn't be better to go back and give the giants a treat at their feast, that feast of theirs, instead of losing our way in the guts of a hill where ten to one there's dragons and deep holes and gases and water and owl. Let go. Save yourselves. I'm... After that, all happened quickly. There was a wild cry, a swishing, dusty, graveling noise, a rattle of stones, and Jill found herself sliding, sliding, hopelessly sliding, sliding quicker every moment down a slope that grew steeper every moment. It was not a smooth, firm slope, but a slope with small stones and rubbish. Even if you could have stood up, it would have been no use. Any bit of that slope you had put your foot on would have slid away from under you and carried you down with it. But Jill was more lying than standing, and the further they all slid, the more they all disturbed the stones and earth. So the general downward rush of everything, including themselves, got faster and louder and dustier and dirtier. From the sharp cries and swearing of the other two, Jill got the idea that many of the stones which she was dislodging were hitting Scrub and Puddleglum pretty hard. And now she was going at a furious rate and felt sure she'd be broken to bits at the bottom. Yet somehow they weren't. They were a mass of bruises, and the wet, sticky stuff on her face appeared to be blood. And such a mass of loose earth, shingle, and larger stones was piled up around her and partly over her that she couldn't get up. The darkness was so complete that it made no difference at all whether you had your eyes open or shut. There was no noise. 
and that was the very worst moment Jill had ever known in her life. Supposing she was alone, supposing the others, then she heard movement around her, and presently all three in shaken voices were explaining that none of them seemed to have any broken bones. And then sort of skipping across the next little part to the end, they are in this darkness, and long, long afterwards, without the slightest warning, an utterly strange voice spoke. They knew at once it was not the one voice in the whole world for which each had, hoped, each had secretly been hoping, the voice of Aslan. It was a dark, flat voice, almost, if you know what that means, a pitch-black voice. It said, what make you here, creatures of the overworld? And the interesting thing here is the children finally are right back on the path. They're right where they're supposed to be. They're right in the middle of where Aslan wants them to be, but it sure isn't comfortable. They are sliding into black darkness um, and are about to be taken prisoner. And that is exactly what is supposed to be happening to them. And this is so important for us to hear because we tend to live in a culture, even among Christians, where we think we're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that suffering business, if you have enough faith, you can get rid of. And that, of course, is not what the New Testament teaches. But a lot of our culture buys into that. But here, what you see is that it is as if they are out of the frying pan into the fire. They escape the giants, but they're in this very frightening place. But the interesting thing is that the place where they are is right where they are supposed to be. And there's this great little quotation from Screwtape here about how comfort and the slippery slope is the best way to nab people. Do remember the only thing that matters is the extent into which you separate man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And this idea that comfort can be your undoing. But we're going to unpack more next time about all of this. Um, some reflection questions that are in your handout um, that deal with these themes that I would encourage you to think about. Uh, let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the great wisdom that is in this book. Lord, we confess to you that we are often naive in the face of evil and we are often mastered by things that we want so much that we decide that compromise is not really a big deal. Lord, we often try to find excuses rather than lean into repentance and coming back to you. And Lord, we do love our comforts and we confess to you that too often we are unwilling to be on the quest to which you call us. But Lord, we know that despite all these things that you love us, and that you want to be at work in our lives. And we pray that you would use the lessons of this story to draw us more deeply into your story. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.